Last night we started on the insight chorus of the Satipatthana Sutta and we got through three sentences and tonight we'll do the fourth. So what we did last night um, the, Buddha, the Buddha says in this way she lives tracking body as body internally or she lives tracking body as body externally or she lives tracking body as body both internally and externally so here we see the weakening of the um, basic self-other division she lives tracking the nature of arising as body or she lives tracking the nature of ceasing as body or she lives tracking both the nature of arising and the nature of ceasing as body so this is the perception of impermanence and of course along with that comes perception of dukkha and of not-self. So the development of insight. Further, her mindfulness, there is body, is established just for understanding, just for continuous mindfulness. So then you get a, a, a clear, a direct intimacy with the experience which is continued over time. And then the final sentence, and she lives independently, not clinging to anything in the world. So this is um, what we're looking at tonight. And this final sentence, she lives independently, not clinging to anything in the world. Uh, this indicates the maturity of the practice and the maturity of the realisation of the awakening itself. And you notice again, it's about a way of life. She lives independently. So this is not just about some kind of meditation experience. This is a whole way of life. And the not clinging indicates the sense that there's nothing further to be gained from anything really. So let's have a look at what this idea of independence is involved by looking at what happens before independence and there are two uh, major conditioning factors the first is desire uh, why do we practice why do we take up any kind of meditation practice in the first place well of course it's because we want something in other words we we are not satisfied with what we have now. We're not satisfied with this current situation. We want something better. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother. So we make effort because desire is the basis of effort. And this is something that the Buddha is quite clear about. Uh, now, the way this works out uh, is... With what we've talked about before uh, that our relationship to the uh, any experience but you can certainly see it in, in the course of the meditation practice is dominated by a sense of what's in this for me what can I get out of this um, and what's underneath that is a sense of things are not good enough yet um, so we have a, an instrumental relationship to experience. We're constantly trying to massage it and manipulate it to make it suitable for our purposes. 
and there's always a gap, there's always something missing, there's always something more we need to, to do. And this is a relationship to the practice and to life that's dominated by what the Buddha calls tanha and avidya. Tanha is usually translated craving, literally it means thirst, and avidya is ignorance or delusion. Now, along with desire, of course, there's also time. Uh, When experience is dominated by a sense of something to be gained or something to be lost, then time becomes real. Um, We find ourselves resisting what's happening now because we're convinced that what will happen later is going to be more important. Or what did happen before wasn't more important. Um, So we don't fully commit to the present um, because what's happening now is just a prelude to something more important that will happen later when I finally get what I want. And this means that what's happening now can be dismissed. If I've judged it as not good enough, then I can just forget about it. I'll just forget about it today and start again tomorrow. Have you ever thought that? (laughs) (laughs) But when we are entirely intimate, then this experience now, whatever it is, Um, is already enough. There's nothing more to gain and there's no thought of anything that's going to come later or even anything that did happen before. Any felt sense of past and future dissolves. Now this doesn't mean that we don't think of past and future but in the very act of thinking about past and future it's perfectly clear that this is just a thought and it arises now. And there's the world of difference between a thought about the past or the future that arises now and being lost in the fantasy of past and future. Um, And when that perception develops, even any concept of the present dissolves. And at this point, there's no possibility of wanting anything else because there's no sense that anything alternative to this is even possible. That is just ridiculous. Now here we're getting into the area that the Buddha calls in this context independence um, in Pali Atnisita um, so let's get a, a sense of independence by first looking at what the Buddha means by dependence which is Nisita Nisita means dependent on attached to supported by now this comes out again comes out of the Buddha's fundamental assumption his fundamental framework of dependent arising. And this states that whatever we experience, 
arises because of conditions other than itself. So if something is happening, which it is, there must be something else which conditioned it to arise. Otherwise it wouldn't be here. So, this, which is happening now, is dependent upon, supported by, these other conditions. Take away the conditions, this collapses. Uh, so, you might be having a satisfactory meditation and um, you might be uh, convinced that finally you've got it, this is it. Now I know exactly what, how this practice works and there's no problem whatsoever. I've conquered it and just at that moment the door swings open very noisily and a guy in boots walks in and says, Love, I've got to look at the heater. Could you move? And suddenly it all collapses. Because the conditions that supported it have just vanished. And with that, the experience vanishes. Uh, this, is, uh, this lesson is useful, especially, especially for um, experienced practitioners. Uh, people, when they, as their practice develops, they might go through very difficult emotional uh, situations where you know, uh, what we could call trauma arises in the heart, in the mind. It completely knocks us out and we stagger up a couple of days later and continue the retreat. And, um, you know, we seem to get over that. And, you know, years go by, that's gone, and we think, phew, cleared that one out. I'm over that. And then suddenly, bang, it's back again. Haven't seen this for five years, ten years, fifteen years, and bang, it's back again just like it was. And it's easy to think, oh, I'm not, I haven't really made any progress. All my sense of progress is an illusion. Well, it is, insofar as I think it's mine. But basically, it's just conditions. If the conditions are such, the problem does not arise. But if the conditions are something else, it arises. It's actually got nothing to do with me. It's just conditions. That's all. <clears throat> so this is the, the, the Buddha's basic um, framework, dependent arising. So the reality of something, of an experience, is inseparable from the reality of what supports it. So, for example, one area of experience that the Buddha is very interested in is my sense of self. So I think I am real. In fact, I'm pretty much convinced I'm real. Certainly sitting up here, I feel real. <laughs> now, I think I'm real in part because you think that I'm real. <laughs> At least you treat me as if you think I'm real. <laughs> So I think I'm the teacher here. I mean, I'm just quietly minding my own business up in the sunroom, and people come in one after the other, and they want, they want to talk about their meditation practice. So I must be the teacher. Imposter. 
Exactly, but don't tell anyone. There's uh, a friend of mine who, who lived in Japan. He said he knew a, a, someone, this woman who, another foreigner living in Japan, who would work in these Japanese companies and she was very successful. But she'd work two or three years and then quit. And then join some other company, work two or three years and quit, and join some other company. Go through this pattern. About two years she would last. And once he asked her, why do you do that? Why do you quit every, every couple of years? I mean, it just causes trouble for you. And she says, as time goes on, I get increasingly agitated and worried that sooner or later they're going to find out that I'm faking it. So I quit before they can. <laughs> and he, his comment on this was, you know, she had a, a good realisation into anatta, but the problem was it didn't go far enough. She didn't realise that everyone is faking it. <laughs> so, yeah, we're all faking it. So I think I'm real in part because you think I'm real. There's an external social support for the self. Also, um, internally, my thoughts about myself. Each day I get up and I think about myself. And... I think about who I am, about how I got here, about how it's going, about how it might go in the future. Um, and the drama of my life flows through my mind. Now, this drama seems real, and the emotions associated with this drama, they seem real, so I must be real. And then there's the whole thing about possessions. So, these, this nice, classy guru, Korean jacket, this seems real, and it's mine. So if this is real, and it's mine, then I must be real. This body seems real, and this is mine, so I must be real. So I'm caught up in this network, this incredibly complex network of external, of um, um, experienced events that together create myself of the reality of me living in this world. And all of those events are dependent upon, supported by something else. And without those supports, it would not be here. And therefore, this sense that here I am in this world would not be here. So it's entirely dependent. Does that make sense? So that's dependence. The opposite is independence. A-nisita. Now, how does the Buddha speak of that? In one discourse, the simile of the snake. He speaks of the chitta, the heart-mind, of a tathagata. And tathagata, we talked about, I think maybe yesterday, is an awakened one. One who is in a state of gone to, come from, gata, tata, just, just come, just gone, just is. So, um, what is the state 
of the chitta, the heart-mind, of an awakened one. The Buddha says, when the devas, including Indra, Brahma and Papapati, seek a practitioner whose heart-mind is liberated in this way, they cannot get hold of anything that a Tathagata's awareness depends upon. Why? Because a Tathagata is untraceable right here and now. So here he's talking about the chitta, the heart-mind, not rather than the body. Um, the devas, including Indra, Brahma and Papapati. Now these are seriously senior Brahma, um, devas. And devas have much more refined and powerful perceptions than human beings. They can perceive things that we cannot. Now they look for an awakened one. They've heard a rumour that there's an awakened one in the human realm. And so they go searching. And they cannot find the chitta of the awakened one. They can find a body that's walking around. But they can't find the chitta that animates this body. Uh, remember all those stories about Mara who comes and bothers the Buddha and other awakened ones? I think the reason why he did that was because he, he was really edgy and agitated because he couldn't find this this person there's the body but where's the chitta and I think it really bugged him um, now they can't find it because such a chitta is untraceable here and right here and now because they cannot get hold of anything that the awareness of such a person depends on is supported by there's nothing that it depends on there's nothing that supports it so it can't be found it can't be grasped I cannot grasp my sense of myself in the absence of those things that support it but what if there's nothing that supports it then how can I get hold of this self I can't. And one way of looking at this is what ultimately what it all comes down to are concepts. I think I am real. I believe I am real. I perceive myself to be real because I perceive this to be real, which supports me. I think this is real, which supports me. So it all comes down to concepts. And concepts involve language in the, in, in the deep sense of how we name ourselves and our world. The meaning we give something, or the meaning that we give to something. So we trace ourselves and others through concepts, through label, through language, through names. But what the Buddha is suggesting is that an awakened chitta, an awakened heart-mind, cannot be captured by any kind of language or concept or description. There's nothing we can get hold of to pin it down 
as something, as anything. Um, in Ati Raga Sutta, uh, the Buddha uses an image which I really am very fond of. He says, a roofed building or hall has windows to the north, the south and the east. When light enters a window at sunrise, where would it land? So that's the question that he gives to the students. And of course, you all know the answer, because it's pretty obvious. On the west wall, Bhante. So the sun rises in the east. There's a roofed building or hall. It's got windows to the north, the south, the east. Light enters the window at the east. Where does it land? On the west wall. If there was no west wall, where would it land? On earth, Bhante. If there was no earth, where would it land? On water, Bhante. This is ancient Indian cosmology. You have the great earth which is supported by the great ocean. If there was no water, where would it land? It would not land, Bhante. Um, so, not landed awareness is apatitita vinyana. Uh, and it's, it's compared to light that doesn't land anywhere. Now, uh, we, in English, we have the saying, a saying to see the light. But we actually don't see light. What we see is what light illuminates, what it lands on. So we give, gave the image of awareness is like light. I step into a dark room, switch on the light, and the room is illuminated. We don't see the light, we see the room. But the fact that we see the room means there is light. Uh, so the light lands upon the people, the furniture, the walls, and so we see what's going on. What would we see if the light did not land anywhere? What would be available? That we have the light, the awareness, but it doesn't actually land anywhere at all. Um, what can we say about such a situation? Does the light exist? Does the light not exist? Or does any kind of concept that we create about it fail? And if concept fails, what, what's left? Uh, now this term unlanded is apatitita and the same term turns up in Sanskrit as apratitishta and it's found as a technical term in the Mahayana. So it turns up in the Diamond Sutra, which is a key text for the Mahayana. Here it's uh, uh, translated as unsupported. Therefore, uh, the, the Buddha there says, Therefore, Subhuti, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva should give rise to an unsupported heart, a heart not supported anywhere, 
a heart unsupported by sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles or phenomena. So the purpose of the practice for a bodhisattva, someone practicing the Mahayana, is to give rise to a citta which is not supported anywhere. Not supported by anything. Nothing in the, nothing in the six senses supports this, this heart-mind. Um, that's from the Sanskrit version of the, of the sutra. In the Chinese version, the same phrase is translated as dwell nowhere and bring forth that mind. So this is the nowhere that one is supposed to dwell. Dwell nowhere and bring forth that mind. So live from that place of nowhere. Uh, and this phrase is very famous in the Zen tradition because when the young man who became the sixth ancestor, Hui Nang, uh, was coming to, home to the village one day carrying firewood because he made a living collecting firewood, there was a monk in the marketplace chanting the Diamond Sutra. And when Hui Nang heard that phrase, bang, he got his first enlightenment experience, got rid of his wood and headed off to the to the monastery. So this is the unlanded awareness or the unsupported heart. Now this is something that is real, that, it, that exists, but, but it cannot be described. It cannot be captured by any concept. Um, so think about how description or con, uh, concept works. I've got something, let's call it X, and I want to describe it. And so I do so eloquently, poetically, clearly. And what I have is a network of concepts. What I don't have is X. So you might go home having done a meditation retreat and somebody asks you, so what have you been doing for the past month? And you might describe it very clearly. And would they know from that what you had done for the past month? No. That's why it's best to say things like, well, nothing much. <laughs> Sat around. <laughs> Did as little as possible, but it was hard. <laughs> so, um, no explanation, no concept can capture the actual lived experience of anything. Uh, and Similarly, the, the chitta, the heart-mind of the liberated one, exists, that is, there really is liberation, but it cannot be pinned down by any kind of concept. And to recognise that, to actually live that, uh, is the goal. Um, to come out of that emptiness, 
this how one lives that this is the um, the subject of a lot of the Zen literature of course they they play with this endlessly so I've got to actually get another one but the the the, the koan that I like to use to illustrate this is case 40 of the gateless barrier and it concerns a monk called Kui Sheng who was a disciple of Pai Chang. Pai Chang was one of the great early uh, Chinese Chan, Chan teachers and um, Kui Shan was one of his disciples uh, and he was the well let's go through the story this is from as I said, from Case 40 of The Gateless Barrier. When Kui Shang was with Pai Chang's assembly, he was cook of the monastery. Uh, now, cook in a monastery is a very responsible and very senior position. Uh, don't imagine, you know, the cook is low down in the hierarchy. The cook is way up in the hierarchy. Otherwise, they wouldn't be given such a job. Pai Chang wanted to choose a founding teacher for Mount Takwe. So there's a nearby mountain which is suitable for a monastery and Pai Chang has been invited to, to create a new monastery. But he needs a teacher there, someone who will go there, basically camp out, attract disciples, attract money, build a monastery and spread the Dharma. He invited all his monks to make a presentation <coughs> saying... The outstanding one will be sent. So this is a, an, um, an interview, a job interview, essentially. An audition, a job interview. He's got to pick his best disciple for this job. So he's going to be as fair as possible. He gets everyone together in, a, in the community. And he says, right, now we're going to pick the outstanding one among you. Then he took a water bottle and put it on the floor and said, don't call this a water bottle. What would you call it? And he sits back and waits. So, imagine you're sitting there and there's this water bottle and you've just been, okay, don't call it a water bottle. What do you call it? Hmm. Um, now, the top of the hierarchy is the head monk. The head monk got a runs the place for the for the teacher. And he's you know, he's second in command and he's obviously um, basically he wants this promotion. You know, why he's, he doesn't want to spend all of his life playing second fiddle to the great guru. He wants his own place. So he decides he's got to say something. So he says, it cannot be called a shoe. <laughs> Now, generally, at this point, if you're studying these, these stories, the Zen student at this point sneers contemptuously. <laughs> it's such a ridiculous presentation. But they're already primed to do that because usually the head monk in these, these stories is, plays the, the role of the idiot. But it's actually not a bad uh, presentation. What's the head monk pointing out? He said, OK, don't call it a water bottle. Fine. Obviously you don't call it a water bottle because you cannot capture this with concept. But you've got to be careful with concept. You can't just do anything with them. They, they, they have power. They can be dangerous or they can be useful. So you've got to be careful 
in, in terms of the way you use them. If you're teaching the Dharma, it's <coughs> concepts. So, and you've got to be careful about what you say. You cannot you call this a shoe. So you can't mess the concepts up. Otherwise you create a mess, especially if you're going to be a Dharma teacher. But Pai Chang obviously was not sufficiently impressed. And so, so Pai Chang then asked Kui Shan his opinion. Now Kui Shan is sitting there. Does he know that this is an audition? Does he know that this is a job interview? Does he not know? Is that why he's silent? Or is he silent because he knows that it is? At any event, he's called out. Okay, your turn. Kui Shan kicked over the water bottle and walked out. <coughs> pai Chang laughed and said, the head monk loses. Kui Shang thereupon was made the founding teacher at Mount Taqui. So, kicking over the water bottle and walking out. So, what was that all about? It's easy to read this as, you know, Zen, antinomianism, nonsense, kind of lawlessness or do whatever you like but it's much, it's much more than that um, remember Kweishan's job, he was the cook now it's a hungry community and here everyone's everyone's been gathered for this you know, really important meeting there's no one in the kitchen but who's responsible for making sure that the next meal arrives on time? Kweishan. I mean, he can't fob it off on the kitchen staff. They're all at the assembly. Frankly, he hasn't got time for this bullshit. There's, there's things to be done. So let's cut through the crap and do it. Kick the water bottle over, go back to the kitchen, make lunch. And I think that's what Pai Chang laughed, apart from the fact that it was funny and he made him laugh. Um, what Kui Shan was doing was he was just doing what needed to be done in the most simple, direct fashion. Just do it. And that's exactly the kind of person Pai Chang was looking for. And in fact, um, Kui um, Kweishan did do it. He was sent off to the mountain and eventually he developed a big monastery. So this is one way that the Zen tradition kind of plays with this sense of um, the unsu unsupported uh, uh, heart, the unlanded awareness, but then how do you live from that? Beyond concept, not tied down by concept. Um, the, not the back story but the forward story when Kweishan went to the mountain it was a very nice mountain apparently it's a very nice mountain with a flat area on top perfect for a monastery and uh, Kweishan built himself a little hut and started meditating and waited for other people to turn up and he waited and he waited and nobody turned up and eventually he thought no one's coming this is a complete waste of my time so he, he, he decided to leave. So he was walking down the, um, the path when all of a sudden he met a tiger. And the tiger looked at him and growled 
Kreshan looked at the tiger and thought, hmm, and he walked back to the top, returned to his hut, thought, maybe I'm not leaving. <laughs> and not long after that, people started to turn up. And it's an interesting story because, of course, the tiger is the spirit of the mountain. If you go to, uh, I don't know if it's like in Japan, but in Korea, um, every, every uh, monastery has a... Um, a uh, little shrine to the mountain spirit and the mountain spirit is invariably this, this old man, long white beard etc with a tiger and it's the tiger spirit of the mountain so the spirit wouldn't let him go anyway that's the diversion so um, part of the aspect of this story and a lot of the Zen stories have this, make the same point no description works. Performance works. Action works. But no description is adequate. So, uh, these words about living independently, not clinging to anything in the world, that these words are trying to convey something that cannot be described that it can be lived. Uh, or, um, so it's, it's, it's futile to try to give a description. Perhaps a more useful project is to ask, how do we practice independence rather than try to describe independence? How do we practice it? And the short answer is by not clinging to anything in the world. Now, if we're going to practice that, how would we go about doing it? Uh, I think there's two fundamental movements. The first is uncover our clinging. Uncover the point where we cling. Now, if, if we ask, well, where do we cling... The answer to that could be obvious. It's like we all have problems. We all have, we all have things we're stuck on. Um, but it can also be very subtle. Sometimes the deepest clinging, the habitual clinging, we never see precisely because it's so habitual. And yet this is what pulls our strings. Uh, somebody said, what, what makes a puppet a puppet? It's the fact that the puppet doesn't know that he's a puppet. That's the perfect puppet. If we're driven by our clinging and our deepest clinging, we don't even know what it is because it's buried so deep. So the first thing is to uncover it. And you can see how in this practice, this is what we're doing. Uh, one way to begin to look for it is by investigating our distractions. What prevents me what prevents the chitta from settling? Um, what's getting in the way? Well, superficially, we could say, well, my distractions. But what that means is my clinging. The mind is, the heart is grasping, holding on to something. And that holding is what gets in the way of everything settling down. 
So if the clinging is underneath the surface of consciousness, so I, I don't see it, but it dominates, it colours the felt situation. It's like wearing coloured glasses. Everything is different. And if I wear the coloured glasses all the time, at some point I don't even notice that they're coloured. I just assume this is the way the world is. So what we do when we practice is, is uncover our clinging. And this involves ever-increasing intimacy, going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the chitta. Uh, when we find it, what do we do? Well, basically, we relax. And then, hopefully, we let go. The job is to let go of the clinging. But as we were discussing, was it this morning? Um, this is one of the reasons why the body work is so interesting, is because we can see this whole process in the body where it's much more obvious than in the chitta, but the process is exactly the same. So in those stretches, find where it's tight. Find where the body in this movement refuses to go any further. That is the point of clinging. The mind is clinging to the perception that it's impossible to go further. Um, find that point and then relax. And what happens when the conditions are right is true. It gives way. And we go a bit further. There is a felt letting go. So find where the holding is, rest the awareness on it, Relax, let go. In the body work, we get a physically felt sense of that, of what the body feels like when we do it. And this helps us feel it in the chitta, where it's much more subtle, but it's exactly the same process. Find the point at which there's a, a holding, the point that we cannot get beyond. Find it, rest the awareness on it, relax. And then at some point when the conditions are right, we let go. Um, when, um, when we let go, when we begin to inhabit the world of non-clinging, how does this world function? Well, we're still in the same world that we are when we're clinging. We still, they're still seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, minding. So we are in a world of experience, but we are no longer in a world of named experience. And that's the difference. No concept works. And so the mind cannot pin down this experience of not clinging as anything at all. 
this is what makes it so so subtle um, later we might look back and name it oh yes that was not clinging but having named it that name that label has already missed the labeled the name has already missed the named and it's impossible to jump over this gap between the actuality and the name we put on it that gap is always there so ordinary life goes on we see, we hear, we think smell, taste, touch but we learn to recognise that while our seeing, hearing, thinking smelling, tasting, touching are real what we see, hear, think, etc is not what we think it is this whole process of experiencing is real but what I think I experience is not so our perceptions and our judgments of what we are sensing are wrong all of them they may be useful because they get us through the day skillfully but they are wrong so if all these perceptions and judgments are wrong what's right as soon as we reach out to put a, a label on something to name it as something to say this is what's right as soon as we do that we are clinging and what we're clinging to is certainty because only concept gives that certainty and as soon as we cling then we're stuck and we're in pain but when we recognize that our label does not match that the concept is wrong then it's possible to relax back into that gap, that space of uncertainty. And, but to relax into it. Normally our response to uncertainty is, Ooh! we tighten, we freeze, we cling. Because we don't like it, it's uncomfortable. Not knowing is not comfortable. So we freeze and we create a concept that we can hold on to. Ah, this is what's going on. But if we can relax into the uncertainty, it's a whole different experience. And the gap between the concept and the reality stimulates our curiosity. I don't know, then what is it after all? So the investigation arises. I walk into a situation in which, conceptually, I've walked into hundreds of dozens, hundreds of times before. Because of that, I fall asleep. I know what it is. So there's no need to stay away. But when I walk into that situation and I know that I don't know what it is, then I'm awake and I'm interested and I'm curious. So 
what arises is what the Buddha calls sati-sampajanya, mindfulness and clear understanding. Um, when we think we know, we fall back into habit. And when we are in habit, um, first of all, we're in our state of habitual clinging, and secondly, we are asleep. We don't know what's going on. We think we do, but we don't. Uh, this is why um, I like to tell people that um, it's what gets in the way of meditation practice is not distraction. Distraction is the content of the practice. The barrier to the practice, even the enemy of the practice, is habit. When we fall into habit, we're asleep. And we fall into habit at precisely the points where we think we know what is going on. But when we genuinely don't know what happens next, and that's quite clear, it's a felt sense of genuinely not knowing what's happening next, then we're awake, we're alert, we're curious, we are interested. And we are um, doing this practice. So that's the final sentence. And she lives independently, not clinging to anything in the world. And this is the, in terms of how one lives, uh, this is the goal of the practice. Any questions or comments? Does any of that make sense? Mm-hmm. The, the significance of or ah yeah not quite mm-hmm. sure um, it's uh, not uh, with these terms I forget what it is in Pali but it's like a verbal tick it's just like a, a way of saying okay then there's there's this and then there's this and then there's this it's like just a way of, to signal that this is the next and this is the next so I'm not sure I can't think of an English equivalent uh, I don't I haven't gone into this deeply, but I don't. Th- I think it just is an indication. Okay, then comes this. Just struck me tonight when you read it again that it's saying this or this. So it I think I mm. heard it as well, you could just focus on internal um, mm. uh, sensation and reach the goal. You mm. know, not not have to do any of the others mm. because of the or, but. Um, I think the um, part of dependent arising is this: is a, there's a there's a sense in which reality is modular. Um, that once you're once you're intimate with one aspect of it, and all the others will turn up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like this multi-dimensional maze. And once we're in at one point of it, then other parts will arise. So let's say, for example, internal, external, internal or external. I would say that for some people, their entry point would be the internal. Mm-hmm. 
But once they're in the internal, then everything else mm. is revealed. But for other people, the entry point will be the external. But once they're in that, then everything else. Mm. Um, yeah. and, and so on. So it's laid out in a very linear fa- fashion. I doubt that it is that linear. Mm. Um, I think um, it's, it's, it's more dynamic than that. Mm. And that there's a sense in which the, the Buddha is laying out possibilities. Mm. And then the meditator, okay, that one is what they're sensitive to. You get a similar thing. Sometimes he'll lay out lists of synonyms. Um, So there's one passage where he's talking about dukkha. And he says dukkha is a boil, a dart, a disease, a Mm tumour, and dum, 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 dum. And he lists about, you know, a dozen whatevers. And when I first read that stuff, I thought, God, this is tedious. But one time when I was doing in intensive meditation practice and going through a lot of dukkha, I was reading it, and I was going, yes, yes, no, yeah. no yes, <laughs> yes, yes, no, no, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. So it's accessibility, really. And it's just yeah. presenting how people experience mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So do you experience it this way? True. You mean, and then catch this one, and then go there, and do, 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 do. Or some people come in this way. So I'm not quite sure about the, um, the technical answer to that question, but these are modular systems, and they're not they're not as linear as they appear, as they're laid out. But if you lay something, if you say something, it's got to be linear. You, mm-hmm. you say one thing first, and then you say another thing, and then you say another thing. So you, concepts have this linear structure, but the reality doesn't necessarily match the linearity of the structure. What was Robin's original question? I couldn't hear it. Oh, whether there was any significance to the or that was used in, in the three first three sentences. The order. Oh, or, yeah. The word or. Oh, wow. Yeah, so she leaves tracking the nature of... A, uh, she leaves tracking body as body internally or. She leaves tracking body as body externally or. She lives striking body as body, both internally and externally. So is this or mean you could do this or you could do that? What does it mean is you do both of them? Or all of them? So what's the meaning of the or? Because in reality, you're not really going to see arising, but without also seeing passing away. Um, yes, although one, one of them could be emphasised. Indeed. So there's some, point, yeah. There's some flavours of impermanence where it's really predominantly arising. One mm. aspect of the process and not other aspects. Mm. Of the well, that, that um, I was just thinking of the very process that you encourage, Patrick, with the when when we realise that we're being distracted, we we haven't seen the arising of that distraction. No, by, def- well, we by definition. We're at we're there at the moment of its passing. Yeah. <clears throat> so it, it can be. That, mm. That's a situation where it's just, just the passing and not the arising. Mm. And then you get, um, in the classical insight knowledges, you have Udaya, Bhaya, and Jnana, uh, knowledge of arising and ceasing, in which you see arising and ceasing. And then you have Bhaya, Jnana, not Bhaya, Banga, Jnana which is the knowledge of dissolution, where you just see the ending of things. Um, and people have different experiences. Like one time here, in a, in a summer retreat, 
uh, one of the meditators was going through Dukkhanyana. Um, what was apparent was the universal characteristic of Dukkha. And she'd be, like, even in just walking from here to the house, through the garden in summer, so everything's blooming, she'd say, she'd be part of the journey what she would see is everything beginning, everything blooming, life springing up out of the out of the ground, everything new, everything fresh, and then suddenly, everything dying, everything ceasing, everything falling to the ground and rotting, and then everything blooming, and it happened several times. Us from here to the uh, to the, to the house, it's like one aspect of change, another aspect, another another one. So you can get all sorts of particular views that may last briefly or they may last for a period of time. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.